maybe 60, 70 rejections, starting to run out of cash, then thereafter getting down to three, four payrolls. I wanted you to hear that. That's Vishal, the founder of Link Squares. They've now raised $161 million. They have over 400 employees in an incredible business. Here's a couple of the things that they did along the way that made a big impact. Having the discipline, let's talk to 100 leaders of a legal department inside of companies before we go and spend lots of money we don't have in building software that will never work or sell, right? I talked to too many founders who want to start building too fast, get to a hundred customer discovery interviews. You have to have good sales leader ASP fit. You can't hire a sales leader who's historically been selling $4 million deals to the Fortune 500 and expect them to sell at a $30,000 price point for 30 days. Like they're just built differently. These are just a few of the highlights that he goes over. It's a great episode, boom. Vishal, welcome to Sit Down Startup Founder Podcast. Uh, super excited to have you here. Um, if you would first just tell us about your company, what you're working on, uh, and how big it is right now. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Great to be here. Link Squares is uh, software for legal teams, and we sell uh, contract management software to in-house legal teams to make their life uh, more awesome. Uh, it's a it's an older market, but uh, right with kind of a, a big innovation push that we're uh, helping lead. Uh, and uh, the company is going great. We're uh, seven years old, just turned seven last year, and uh, about 400 employees and have raised like $161 million, five rounds of venture capital financing. Congratulations. This is exciting. But y'all are right in line with the, the kind of founders that we talk to of, of companies like Outreach, Zoom Info, like these huge amounts of money as they've raised. So I'm, I'm excited to, to go under the hood here and learn a little bit about some of the growth strategies that you've had to get there. But first, I know it's a challenging time out there as a founder. So is there a low moment that you could share with us and like kind of how you were feeling, take us in that boardroom or whatever it was, just to give people inspiration that they can get past that? Yeah, we had raised our uh, seed round in 2018 and then we we're operating in 2019. And the business was just going gangbusters, like we're going to triple our revenue. That was probably like a one to 4 million ARR type journey that we were on. We had like 25 people in the company and uh, we had added, I don't know, over 120 new customers in one year. And it was going so fast that we eventually were like, okay, we should go raise capital. And doing the Series A financing, and I really think Series A probably the hardest one there is. Uh, you're kind of like an awkward teenager. You're not, you're not quite a full-blown adult, but you're not like a, just an idea with a bunch of people. You're kind of somewhere in the middle. Doing the Series A, really challenging. Uh, you know, maybe 60, 70 rejections, starting to run out of cash, then thereafter... Uh, getting down to three, three, four payrolls and then kind of having the belief that we would get it done and go get it done. But definitely a moment of, of stress where things are going so well, but the fundraise just didn't, wasn't going so well, you know, God, so we could do a whole podcast on that alone, but that was definitely a low moment in, in some of the maybe more stressful hundred days of my life, but we got through it. Like every good founder does you get through it. Wow. So yeah, you're basically having pitches with VCs, and you know you have a couple months left of payroll before you're going to have to go shut things down. Did you ever like look into like what it would actually take to shut it down? Did you get there or where it was? Never. It just... 
Never. We had institutional uh, capital then through our seed round. So I knew that there was a lifeline if we needed it. I never really kind of thought that we needed it, but just kind of the journey of being, being in those rooms and trying to convince people that this is a great business. We're going to build a big company, which eventually I think we kind of did right now, but uh, just, just how hard it was to convince people to give you more money to keep, keep on the journey. So. Wow. I appreciate you sharing that. That's really inspiring considering you've raised 161 million now. So it obviously, uh, it worked. I think being on the venture side, it's easy from my perspective, it was easy to like kind of put companies like pigeonhole companies and be like, Oh, they're just not there. It's just not a good company or whatever. And I'm sure that it sounded like a lot of VCs probably did consider you that at the series A level. And yet you're where you are now. So I just, I want that to be known to all the founders out there that might feel stuck. You know, the, the interesting thing is um, there's a lot of reasons for no, and some of them you can't control, right? Like, like sentiment about your buyer or the market you're in or how you go to market or your price point. Oh, it should be six figure only. Or why don't you sell this for a dollar to every person? And everyone's got their opinions, but I think the, the doing five rounds of capital, you always need one true believer who can kind of see past the roughness around the edges, potentially if there is roughness, but really believes in what you're doing and likes, mm. likes it. I mean, I always tell founders when you fundraise, like in the first 10, 15 minutes, like it's chemical, like it's chemical between you and the other person. If it's not chemical, it's never going to be chemical. Right. And so trying to continue to have hope that you'll find that chemistry with someone who believes in what they do. I mean, hard job as well. Being a, being a venture capitalist, hard job, a lot of no's, uh, see lots of deals. Right. Maybe lots of regrets. Who knows? That's so good. I really appreciate that. Well, tell us about some of the growth stories or strategies that you had in the early days, right before that hockey stick moment. Yeah, I, I think about it in kind of two periods. There was kind of the zero to one million journey and then the one to 10 million journey that had like lots of different challenges. I mean, just the zero to one journey is, is all about like, did you build the right product? Like, did you take your time to build the right product and solve the right problem? Like, and, and we did, right. So we, we probably spent a year, maybe over a year, just not building software, even though I'm like a software builder, like traditionally, and my co-founder is like a, more like a sales account management type person. And so, and so kind of having the discipline to like, let's talk to a hundred leaders of a legal department inside of companies before we go and spend lots of money we don't have and building software that will never work or sell. Right. And once you kind of establish, you did enough discovery, it's like, okay, founder led sales, like just grinding through terrible conversion rates because it's just hard. There's, <laughs> there's not a lot of evidence the company will be alive next year. There's not a lot of proof points. A lot of people use it. You're not on any uh, magic quadrant or forester wave or, you're not even on G2 back then. I mean, G2 wasn't even really a thing back then, like G2 crowd. And, and, and then after kind of, we, we did five logos the first year and then added another 20, you kind of saw the kind of pattern match, right? And then on the way to a million, I picked up a great sales leader, my CRO, Steve, who's still here uh, over four years now. And there's a, there is a moment where you give it to someone, which is great, right? You, you have enough mass assembled of knowledge where I can say, listen, my co-founder and I, we're a bunch of knuckleheads. Like we got it this far to 700, 800 K. I'm a big believer in that. Like you can't outsource that part of it because everyone in the company is going to 
going to need the knowledge that you have, whether it's products or engineering or marketing. How did you do it? What was the message? What resonated? You have a lot of that in here. You're not doing a heavy amount of CRM work when there's two people that work in the company, right? You're doing a little bit of it, but um, then getting into a million is like a great inflection point. It's like, wow, you know, a million dollars of recurring revenue is going to come in every year. That's awesome. Then you think about like, how do you go fast one to 10, right? And we're so fortunate we're able to go one to 10 in just over two years, like, like two years and a couple months. And once we kind of knew that we could do one to 10 that quickly, that whole model can continue to scale, right? Like if you have 20 sales reps, you can get 40, you can get 60, you can get a hundred. And the ability to then think about the next sort of journey in the company is like, how do you do it efficiently? How do you build the pipeline? How do you look at CAC back? How do you, how do you think about sales efficiency and then kind of on and on. And then after 10 million ARR, you're really kind of thinking about like, how do I get to a hundred now? Right. And that's the journey we're on now. It's like, you know, how do you get to a hundred now? And, and then you kind of, your mindset continues to change, but you know, some of the strategies were like, you have to have good sales leader ASP fit, right? I'm a big believer in that. Like you can't hire a sales leader who's historically been selling $4 million deals to the fortune 500 and expect them to sell at a $30,000 price point for 30 days. Like they're just built differently, right? They're just running a different strategy, right? I mean, it's kind of like football. You were run first offense or a pass first offense. You can't, you can't get someone to be something they're not. Right. And so having that good kind of sales leader ASP fit, no stretching there. No, maybe shoulda, coulda, Adam can figure it out. He's smart enough. Yes. Everyone's smart enough to figure it out, but you probably don't have the luxury of time to be able to, to wait that long to figure it out. So that's really key. Uh, pick someone that and all your executives, as you think about executives, pick, pick people that, other folks who are earlier on their journey will aspire to become, right? That was a lot of my journey of being a, being kind of like an individual contributor, manager, whatever, uh, on the way to becoming like the CEO, becoming a founder is so many people brought me up in the gate. So many people taught me about marketing and, and about product development and about sales positioning and branding and copywriting and selling just how do you sell, right? And so yeah, if you can find the right leaders who work for, the CEO, then your recruiting kind of happens naturally. Everyone wants to kind of orbit around someone who can teach them how to become better at what they do. And mm-hmm. I think that's been a real special thing on the growth side, especially on the recruiting side. Uh, and then kind of what, whatever got you to a million will get you to, you know, four or 10, right. Or five or 10. It's like, don't, don't get real experimental with kind of targeting strategies either. Right. Like the things that got you to one will get you to five stay focused on that. Like, mm. okay, we're selling to, I don't know, whatever public companies that, that sell software. Okay, great. Well, let's just focus on that right now. We know that's proven. Exper- don't bet the farm on experimentation either, right? Like you need wins every month. You need wins every quarter, right? And so mm. uh, staying focused is, is the most important thing. Things that are working, put, put more doubles on it, you know, double down on it, triple down on it, quadruple down on it. And then experiment kind of loosely with, with things that, you know, can't ruin your future either. Right. And I think those are some of the things that we, we kind of figured out and, and focused on in the early days. I love that. And that reminds me of Malcolm Gladwell's 
great by choice was talking about like Canon, like he studied companies that grew really fast and like they did like little small micro tests, like you're talking about. And then they did maybe one or two after to confirm it. And then they went big in that area and they doubled down and what they saw was working. But like to experiment as a huge percentage of your company is a really dumb thing to do. <laughs> so <laughs> totally. I, yeah, but go, going back to the first thing you said, so you said we talked to a hundred legal department leaders. That is very interesting. And you did that and your co-founder, is that right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, sure. We were more afraid of building the wrong product. And you see it, right? People, people rush to build software. They, they think software is the key, right? It's like, here's a potential business problem. Let's go create a solution and then go to customers, right? Wrong, right? Bad path. Like, here's a business problem that exists in the world. Let's get the customer in front of it first. Like who could that customer be? Validate that the problem is what they have. They would pay money for it. Solution comes later. Some of the hardest years in the journey, to be honest, like, like making no money, getting rejected every day. People are like, I don't want this at all. But just having the kind of grit and determination to keep, keep going through the conversations and amassing knowledge of consensus, right? Like, Okay, 70 people say we should build what we ended up building with link stores and then we're on now, let, now let's go now let's go do it, right? And this was before you built the product because you said you're oh, yeah, you're a developer. Totally. Yeah. How, totally. Was there a conversation that you could kind of take us in the uh where you kind of felt the shift during that hundred liter research? Yeah, the 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 pain point around knowing what what was inside contracts that had already been signed versus mm -hmm. software that gets contracts to the point of signing, like getting contracts to the point of signing was something that had already existed in the world for like 20 years, right? Like drafting a contract, redlining it, versioning it, getting it through approval. Like there's a lot of companies that do that already and companies already have their process. But the real thing that we heard was like, through our own experience, we had that pain. My co-founder and I had that direct pain working at a company that got bought by another company. And the big company that bought us asked us what was in all our contracts. So it was like, ding, hey, this is interesting. Like, why is this so hard? And then you kind of build off that proof point, like asking open-ended questions. Like if someone asks you to figure out which contracts have termination for convenience in it, and you have 10,000 customer contracts, how would you do it? And it's like, it's manual. We have to read them all one at a time. Like we have nothing to be able to search it, or there's no metadata that we know about these contracts we've already executed. And then you kind of build consensus to the next person that's like, hey, we just heard on a phone call that this was a problem for someone else. Is that the same problem for you? Yes, check. Okay. Hey, I heard from two people that this was the same problem. Is this a problem for you? Check. Okay, you keep going. The cool thing is, Adam, is that you, then you start talking like them. Like you start using the same sort of terminology that they use. Then, you know, you're getting deep into the mind of the buyer. Like I'm not a general counsel, right? I'm not a lawyer. I'm a two degree engineer, right? Like a software engineer. Uh, product type person. I don't know much about them, but your journey in the early days is really to learn about your buyer. Like, who are they as people? Where do they value? Where are they on the power line of the decision making of the company? Are they the CEO's best friend or are they the CEO's like, oh, yeah, we have that legal guy too? Like, he, he, he's here too periodically. Like, you have to really deeply understand it because ultimately you're going to ask them to go sign an order form, become a customer, use this product, and, and be a champion of yours.
Oh my gosh. I I'm sure there's a lot of cool stories in that. And I know we can't unpack them all now, but I really appreciate that. Just like getting really deep in the head of the customer and understanding the problem better than they do during these interviews. Were you showing them mock-ups at all, or was it just conversational? Yeah. Clickable prototype, uh, clickable prototypes of your friends, kind of low risk, easy to kind of put together so many tools now that we didn't have that are available in the market today. No code, low code, whatever. Uh, we were able to show that. And then, you know, periodically people would be like, what's that button do? And it's like, you don't want to see that. Well, there's really not button doesn't do anything, but it, you know, you don't know that. That makes a lot of sense, but it's, it's super lightweight stuff in that, in that piece to, to expedite the conversation and to expedite the learning. Well, this has been unbelievable. I really appreciate you sharing your story. The final question is what is your superpower as a founder? Yeah, I, uh, I love thinking about product, uh, building great software experiences. And that's something I'm passionate about innovation, technology, thinking through like, Oh, with all my kind of years of working as an operator in businesses and operations and data, like what makes great product experiences? Like how do you, how do you use automation to make your life better? Right. And, and also I think, selling right if you're a if you're a founder you got to get good at selling whether that's selling the vision to investors or selling the vision to future executive hires or people on the team and and eventually over time you make it a superpower i think it's a mandatory superpower all founders like you have to be able to sell at some level like you have no choice but those are the things that fire me up i I love the product stuff i really love it all but the product stuff has been my favorite. I love that. When I was uh, interviewing uh, Henry Shuck, the founder of Zoom Info, he was saying that he still carried a bag as a salesperson when they were at 85 million ARR. And I was like, wow. And he says his most valuable time is listening to sales calls to understand like those emotional pain points that are happening when you're asking the customer for money or the prospect for, for a close. So I, I love to hear that. That's a consistent theme I've heard for all these interviews. That's awesome. Well, um, the, the final question is what did you want to be when you were a kid? What did you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> I didn't tell you this one. Ashra. Ashra. Wow. And, uh, my wife was the same. She wanted to be an astronaut too. So uh, that I guess is- that's what we got. I guess that's what we got married. We both relied on a love of, of going to space, but yeah, no, I was obsessed with space as a kid. I don't know. Weird, weird kid growing up. No, I love it. I, I bet that can come true now. Like with all the options we got now, that is. Oh yeah, for sure. It'll be exciting one day. Yes. Well, thank you so much. This has been an incredible episode. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about Zendesk for startups, check out our website, zendesk.com startups. Also, we're always looking to improve. So don't hesitate to email me with any feedback on how we can ask better questions, guess the target, or anything else so we can do to better help you as a founder. My email is adam.odonnell at zendesk.com.